Welcome, this is Yolanda sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832-1914 and uh, we're part way through chapter 4 on page 31 and these are the words of Joseph Smith III Heading George A. Smith George Albert Smith was a cousin of my father's being the son of John Smith, who was brother to my grandfather, Joseph. As I remember him, he was large, solidly built, not fat, but was the English would call stout. He was rather florid in complexion and had sandy hair and a sandy beard when he wore one. His manners were very gentle and he was active, good-natured and a pleasant conversationalist. I liked him when I was a boy. And as a man, I knew nothing of him to cause me to cherish personal dislike or ill will toward him. <clears throat> he visited Nauvoo in the fall of 1856 in company with Erastus Snow. They drove out to see me where I was living on the farm, once owned by father, some two and a half miles east of Nauvoo on the Carthage Road. They brought with them a copy of Fred Percy's book, The Route to Salt Lake City which contained a detailed account of a trip from Liverpool to Salt Lake. Sketches and portraits of individuals met on the way, descriptions and pictures of places visited, all being written and drawn by Mr Pearcey's own literary, literary and artistic hand. I well remembered the visit that gentleman had made to Nauvoo, and that while he was there he had begun pencil sketches of several of the family for the purpose of incorporating in his contemplated book. So it was a copy of this work that George A. and his companion brought with them, a handsomely finished volume, and presented to me. It was considered quite valuable, and is still somewhere in existence, I believe. On the occasion of their visit in my home, we talked quite freely. They gave me a personal invitation to visit them when I came to Salt Lake City, telling me that the people would be pleased to see me pleased to know I was there among them, for they really thought that my place. I replied to these remarks with frankness, stating that I could not conscientiously go to Utah and take up an abode there as one of them for a number of reasons, the principal one being that I did not believe as they believed, or at least as they were teaching. Quote, well, you believe in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, do you not? I was asked. Quote, certainly I believe in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, quote, I replied, but not as you people interpret them, and I could not go out there and make my home with you while you are teaching and practicing as you are, close quote. I suppose you refer to polygamy. Yes, I could never accept or countenance that doctrine, I answered. These men did not officially invite or request me to come to Salt Lake City, that is, in the sense that they acted in a, an official capacity as having been authorised by their president, Brigham Young, to extend such an invitation. What was said was simply the expression of their own desires and opinions, personal viewpoints entirely. No direct request ever came to me from Brigham Young to come to Utah and unite myself with the fortunes of the church there. If he ever desired that I should come, he was too shrewd a man to allow himself to be put upon record as expressing such a wish or making such a request. 
though it was reported that he had public publicly stated that I ought to come out there, unite with them, and be ordained under the hands of their apostles. <clears throat> Next heading, Charles C. Rich. I believe that Charles C. Rich was the youngest of the men belonging to the Quorum of Twelve at the time of father's death. He was a very pleasant man and I liked him well, although without a very extended acquaintance with him, in company with someone else I once made a visit at his house on Parley Street, the recollections of which, as well as of the man himself, are very pleasant. After his departure from Nauvoo in the exodus to the west, I never met him again, although in 1889, as I recall, I was privileged to meet some of his children in Ogden. I was also permitted to preach in two or three places up in the Beer Lake country, not far from Soda Springs, Idaho, in which region he had done considerable work as an apostle and as at Montpelier as a man of business. Personally, I knew nothing to, to the discredit of the man. If memory serves me right, concerning some things I heard whilst at St. Bernardino, I believe he was associated with Amazer Lyman in helping quite a large number of the fleeing saints to settle on the St. Anna River in the San Bernardino Valley. After their arrangements were made, they received a peremptory order from Brigham Young to leave the California region and return at once to Salt Lake City. Elders Lyman and Rich obeyed the mandate, but many of the saints refused to do so. They liked the valley and remained there, numbers of them later becoming members of the reorganised church. <clears throat> Next heading, Amaza Lyman. Amaza Lyman was another apostle whom I knew. I heard a rumour circulated about after father's death that Elder Lyman had been designated by father as a counsellor to take the place of Sidney Rigdon or of William Law. But from what happened after I concluded this was a mistake. Miser Lyman was a frank, outspoken man as I remember him. His talk seemed to indicate a certain freedom of belief which might be said to border on infidelity. He was impatient of restraint and had no particular use for dogmatism. In view of these characteristics he has ever been incomprehensible to me how he ever became subject to such dominion Domination, as I have reason to believe, governed him after father's death. Next heading, John Taylor. I also know John Taylor, a tall, fine-looking man of intelligence, sparely built, though not lean, quiet in demeanour and with a straight, frank look out of his eyes in those days. I regarded him as an honest man when I was a boy and one who was very friendly to me. For a time, he was in charge of the Times and season of, Season's office. He was one of the men who were with Father at his death. It is somewhat singular that of the four who were in the jail on that fateful day, three were struck by four balls each, and that the one who escaped, Willard Richards, was the largest, most corpulent one of the group. I remember visiting John Taylor at his house as he lay recovering from the wounds received in Carthage jail and was shown the watch he had carried in his pocket which had deflected the course and diminished the force of the bullet 
Had the ball not struck exactly where it did, Elder Taylor would probably have lost his life also. I called on him frequently while he was recovering from his wounds and was always made welcome by him. I do not remember much about his family except that his wife's name was Leonora. I had seen it with others in a signed statement in the Times and Seasons of October 1842 wherein several of the people went on record in regard to what was called the spiritual wife doctrine. I do not think I ever saw Elder John Taylor after the exodus of the church from the state of Illinois to the west. <clears throat> Next heading, Parley P. Pratt. Parley P. Pratt was a good-looking, portly man, as I recall him, with an excellent voice and good pulpit address. I heard him preach more than once, but remember him more particularly because of the hymns he wrote, printed in the Times and Seasons and in the hymn book. He also published a pamphlet known as The Voice of Warning, well known and widely read. As a boy, I read it and have reread it many times since. Occasionally, I used to meet Elder Pratt in Nauvoo when he came from his missions, but he was absent from the city a great deal. I have no recollection of ever meeting him after they went west. I knew his brother Orson better than I did Parley, perhaps because the former was connected with the city government and had a position as a teacher in the schools. And about the family of Parley P. Pratt, Pratt, I remember nothing. Next heading, Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt was a smaller man than his brother Parley, quick, alert, active, pleasant-mannered, and perhaps one of the brainiest men that ever accepted Latter-day Saintsism during the first years of the church's existence. He became a voluminous writer and was an eloquent preacher, whom I heard more or less frequently in Nauvoo. I remember meeting him occasionally and of calling on him at his house, where I also met his wife Sarah. Certain circumstances which occurred in the later years fixed these two prominently in my memory. Orson Pratt once passed through Plano while I was living there and was requested by the brother in charge during my temporary absence from home to occupy our pulpit. I believe he did attend a prayer service and spoke briefly to the saints assembled there. However, not being home at the time of his visit, I did not get to see him and have no recollection of ever meeting him after he left Nauvoo until in 1876 when I stopped at Salt Lake City on my return from a trip to California. On that occasion, I heard him preach in, I think, the 17th Ward Meeting House. He used as a text the prophet's words about Zion to be built and established in the top of the mountains. In the discourse, he referred to the temple which had been ordered by the Lord to be built in the land of Zion, the state of Missouri. In connection with this prophecy, he made one statement that seemed to me quite peculiar under the circumstances. In circumstance, it was to the effect that many of those who were then listening to him living there in Utah would not live to go back to Zion and build that temple. After the service, I shook hands with Elder Pratt. He expressed his pleasure at meeting me and I mine at hearing him preach. I remarked that having been born near the beginning of the time included in this generation, I might under ordinary circumstances live to see the temple built. Yes, he admitted, adding with a smile, but simply living at the time will not be the only qualification required. True, I answered, worthiness is more to be considered, and I intend to try to live in such a manner that I will be counted worthy to assist in the work should I still be living then. 
The next day, Cousin John Smith's wife asked me what I thought about Elder Pratt's sermon. There appeared to be something behind the question as she asked it, so I said, Why do you ask? She replied that a number had asked her if she had heard me make comment upon it. Well, you may tell them you heard Cousin Joseph say that he believed Elder Orson Pratt's natural inclination is to tell the truth and that he would tell it if he were left alone without intimidation or domination. Truly, it has ever been a mystery to me how it came about that such a man as Elder Orson Pratt, of so brilliant a mind with such love of humanity and such willingness to defend what he believed to be right, could ever have submitted to such domination as I have reason to believe was exercised over him. I believe I did not meet him again after that visit of 1876 in Salt Lake City, to which I have just referred. However, a relation here of some circumstances connected with one of my later visits to Salt Lake City might be of interest, since they have to do with my memories of the wife of Orson Pratt. I was visiting in the home of a retired physician named Benedict, a man who had obeyed the gospel in New Jersey, had gone to Utah and perceived the errors that had crept into the doctrines, had retained a nominal membership only with the church there. In conversation with him and his wife, I mentioned Elder Orson Pratt, then deceased, and asked them if they knew the woman who was his wife when he lived in Nauvoo, and whether or not she was living still. They said, why, yes, she lives with some sons of hers, only about two blocks from here, and we know her well. For certain reasons which I believe to be good, I was desirous of having a talk with Mrs. Pratt, when, whom I had known at Nauvoo. So I asked Dr. Benedict if he would go with me to call upon her. He consented to do so, and after lunch, we repaired to the house and I was presented to the lady. In the chat which ensued, I asked her if she remembered her husband's having received a copy of the new inspired translation of the scriptures. She said she did, that he came home one day quite elated over the receipt of the book, but that there was nothing about it to indicate from whom it had come. She related how, right after supper, they had sat down together he with the inspired version and she with the King James turning to such passages as he directed and together they had examined it most thoroughly, reading and comparing until a late hour. Finally, at two o'clock in the morning, he laid the book aside with a sigh and said, Sarah, these men have done their work honestly. This translation is just as it was left by the Prophet Joseph in 1833. I could quickly have deleted, I could have quickly de have detected it had they tampered with or altered what he wrote i'm delighted with it and i thank god that i have received this copy mrs pratt then told me the pitiful sequel to his happiness she said that the next sunday as he preached to his congregation in the ward meeting house he told them about the book he had received that he had carefully examined it and wanted to testify that the inspired translation published by the reorganized church had been correctly done and was exactly as the prophet joseph had left it as they went out of the meeting house, Mrs. Pratt told her husband she feared he had made a mistake in thus mentioning the book publicly and praising it so highly, for she had a feeling he might have to take back what he had said, should President Young hear of it. Sure enough, on the Tuesday following, Elder Pratt received a summary notice to report forthwith or at the President's office. He did so, and as he entered, President Young greeted him with, Awesome, where is that inspired translation? 
at my house, he answered. Then Priggan pointed out the window, said, You see that horse and buggy out there? You can take it and go home and get that book at once and bring it back here. Orson said, as he was commanded, Orson did as he was commanded and returning preferred, pro-offered the book to Mr. Young. But that gentleman refused to touch it, putting his hands behind his back as if it were polluted. He said snappishly, hand it to Bishop Preston hit there. Then he proceeded to give Elder Pratt a severe lecture, asking him how dared he go into the pulpit and defend that book as he had done on the Sunday before. He ordered him to go back onto that very stand at the same place and before the same people and retract everything he had said about it. Elder Pratt demurred, saying, But Brother Young, I cannot do that. What I said is true, and the translation is as the prophet wrote it. But Brigham would not listen to him, and shaking with temper, pointed his finger at him and said, You take it back, sir, do you hear me? You must take it back, and before those same people. So the next Sabbath, poor Elder Orson Pratt, the ablest defender of Mormonism that ever crossed the plains to the west, had to go upon the stand and publicly retract his words, repudiating all he had said about the book, and that too, without being able to explain why he was doing so. At the conclusion of this sorry narrative, I expressed to Mrs. Pratt my regret that Elder Pratt had had such misfortune with the gift I had sent him, and stated that had I known he had been obliged to part with it, I should have been delighted to have sent him another copy. She seemed pleased and told me it had not occurred to them that I had been the one who sent it. They had supposed it was some old friend. And that was just who it was, Sister Pratt, I assured her. The latter part of my conversation with her revolved around the matters I had particularly in mind when I sought the interview. I asked her, Sister Pratt, will you allow me to ask you some rather personal and delicate questions? You may ask me any questions proper for a lady to hear and answer, she replied. I assured her I would use no language a lady should not hear and did not wish to ask any improper questions or one she might not answer in the presence of Dr. Benedict, who was with me. But I told her I felt there were some which referred to my father and herself, which only she could answer. I asked her to consider the circumstances in which I was placed. I was the son of the prophet, had been baptised by him, was a member, though a young one, at the time of his death, and thought that I had understood, in part at least, the principles the church taught and believed. But following his death, certain things were said about him, his teaching and practice, which were at variance with what I had known and believed about him and about the doctrines he presented. Naturally, I wanted to know the truth about these matters, for I assured her I would much rather meet here in this life whatever of truth might be revealed about those things, even though it were adverse to what I believed to be his character, than to wait until after I'd passed to the other side and there be confronted with it and compelled to alter my position so such revealment proved I had been in error. She told me to proceed and the following conversation took place. I asked, did you know my father in Nauvoo? Yes, I knew him well. Were you acquainted with his general deportment in society, especially towards women? Yes. 
Did you ever know him to be guilty of any impropriety in speech or conduct towards women in society or elsewhere? No, sir, never. Your father was always a gentleman and I never heard any language from him or saw any conduct of his that was not proper and respectful. Did he ever visit you or at your house? He did. Did he ever at such times or at any other time or place make improper overtures to you or proposals of an improper nature begging your pardon for the apparent indelicacy of the question? To this Mrs Pratt replied quietly but firmly, no Joseph, your father never said an improper word to me in his life, he knew better. Sister Pratt, it has been frequently told that he behaved improperly in your presence and I have been told that I dare not come to you and ask you about your relations with him for fear you would tell me things which would be unwelcome to me. Sorry, I've got to be emotional. <laughs> I just want to comment and stop um, reading right this moment and just say that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has um, connected Joseph Smith Jr. to all to a whole load of women saying that um, he married them, that he was um, indecent with them and all these things. And here's this conversation. Here's this conversation. And we can see in this chapter of how awesome Pratt has been manipulated by Brigham Young and we can see that um, the son of Joseph Smith Jr is um, being brave and directly asking this woman the truth of um, rumours and allegations made and here she is and yet in 2021 the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are still trying to stick to um, corrupting the name of Joseph Smith because if they make him um, free of all of this it means that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is false and so they have to hold on to it they have to put everything onto Joseph Smith because if it all happens under the name of Brigham Young it means that the church became corrupt at that time and that it's no longer the true church upon the face of the earth. So the church has to hold on to the lies. And um, I would like there to be a change because there are good people in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and I believe that many are turning away from the church and um, leaving it because they're finding out the lies but... I say, come clean, clear up the past. The past was such a long time ago. Clean it up and just um, come clean with the truth and stop all these lies and uncover it. It's all going to be uncovered anyway. It's all going to come to light. This is the day and age of everything, all the truth to be revealed. And so it's going to happen anyway. But I will continue reading. Sister Pratt says this, you have no need to fear, she repeated, your father was never guilty of any, of an action or proposal of an improper nature in my house toward me or in my presence at any time or place. There is no truth in the reports that have been circulated about him in this regard. 
He was also the Christian gentleman and a noble man. Then I thanked Mrs. Pratt very warmly for her testimony. In these matters, my readers may be very sure, I had constantly heard it charged that my father had been guilty of improper conduct toward Elder Pratt's wife and had long before made up my mind that if ever I had opportunity, I would find out the truth from her. The result was very gratifying to me, especially as she had made her short, clear-cut statements freely, just as I had recorded in the presence of Dr. Benedict. It may be added that mingled with my pleasure was a degree of astonishment that such stories as had been told about her and her relations with father should have gotten out and been so widely circulated and yet never met with a public refutation from her. However, I expressed my appreciation of her kind reception and her statements and at the close of our interview which lasted about an hour and a half, left her with good wishes. Dr. Benedict and I passed from her presence into the street in a silence which was not broken until we had gone some distance. Then suddenly he stopped, pulled off his hat, looked all around carefully, and raising his hand emphatically said, My God, what damned liars these people are. Here for years I have been told that your father had Mrs. Pratt for one of his spiritual wives and was guilty of improper relations with her. Now I hear from her own lips in unmistakable language that it was not true. What liars, what liars. Not a great while after this, just how long I do not know, Mrs. Pratt passed over the river, as in died. I was glad that before she died I had her testimony and that he had proved, as had been proved many times before, that such charges made against my father were untrue. In 1891, when in the prosecution of the suit brought against the Hendrickites for possession of the temple lot in Independence, persons were put upon the witness stand in Salt Lake City in an effort to convict my father of having taught and practised polygamy. The attempt signalled failure. Um, the attempt signally failed, as was clearly stated in his decision on the case by Ju Judge John F. Phillips, before whom the suit was tried. Throughout all these years, before and after that suit, I have conscientiously traced statements made by various individuals inculpating my father in this wrongdoing, and in every instance I have failed to find evidence worthy to be called proof. It strikes me now as it has for many, many years, that honourable men and women years um, honourable men and women should absolve me from blame for pursuing the course I have taken in steadfastly refusing to believe simply because persons entangled in the evil meshes wish to involve him in their wrongdoing, that my father was a bad man and responsible for doctrines which he himself pronounced to be false and corrupt. That's the end of chapter four. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope that it's opened up your mind to thinking and if you are someone that has um, thrown the baby away with the bathwater, I'd like you to consider um, consider that um, if you have left the church because you thought Joseph Smith was corrupt, that you might separate out a line between Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and um, 
have new thoughts and um, hopefully we could um, work something out for the future that we can hold on um, and know for ourselves um, truth from evil and truth from error and um, listen in for chapter five in the next episode so which will be on page 34 thank you for listening